Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But I also love the minority theme. You know, the, the I call it sometimes the lunar theme in the Bible, which, which is God's care for the stranger and the sojourner and the resident alien. Uh, Torah is so huge on that. You know, that yes, you're called to love the neighbor, but as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs pointed out to me, that shows up once um, in Torah, and there are, you know, more than 30 commands to love the stranger to remind us that the stranger and I are both alike before the Lord. And I think, you know, the Christian New Testament has got its own version of that as well. As you said, in many of the activities of Jesus, and yet we kind of baptize all the characters who come into his stories and forget that they went back home by another way and, you know, didn't stay to become part of the Christian community in wherever he was. So I, I, I love the lunar theme, the minority theme that goes through these texts, these sacred texts that always make room for those who don't belong to them, who are not, you know, who don't worship at that altar. Stronger than fear, brighter than John, this is this is a moment. <laughs> yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. BBT. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this is the outro. The intro. Oh, oh. We're, people, oh. people, people can just know that we are uh, we're, we're going back in time <laughs> to, to record this intro. <laughs> I love that we just don't even care anymore. Yeah, yeah. You guys so, know we just spoiled the magic. Sorry, guys. So hi, everybody. <laughs> um, good to good to be with you. Mm-hmm. Good to be with you all again. Um, yes, Barbara Brown Taylor, BBT. We got the BBT. Do you? I mean, you do know because uh, I had so much trouble controlling myself. The interview <laughs> everybody's about to hear. But when a couple months ago, when we scheduled with Barbara Brown Taylor, and you put it on the calendar, and I got the alert, I had body tingles, <laughs> full body tingles. I was excited for you because I remember, I remember probably, probably, gosh, probably a year and a half ago when you read Learning to Walk in the Darker oh, yeah. last book. Even more than that, dude. It's been like almost three years. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, almost three years because I read it when it first came out. So for those of you that don't know Barbara Brown Taylor, probably if you're listening to this podcast, there's a really good chance that even if you haven't read her stuff, you probably have heard of her. Yeah, tell us, tell us, Anna, why is she a big deal, man? She's a what re- has she done? What so, has she done, So Adam? she's a really freaking big deal, dude. She's <laughs> a really, really big deal. Um, in addition to, you know, being an amazing author, she's not only just an author, she's a New York Times bestselling author. And to be a New York Times bestselling author without really anything, she's not a rock star. Like, she's not a, she's not a celebrity that put a book out. She's just a really great author that writes phenomenal nonfiction on religion and spirituality in some really kind of off the beaten paths 
sort of way. So she, she doesn't even really paint herself as a theologian when she writes. She's just a good writer about religion. And so she's, you know, a New York Times bestselling author. Um, the book I first read was Learning to Walk in the Dark, but one of her other bestsellers was An Altar in the World. Uh, she publishes weekly best religion books of 2014. She was also one of Time Magazine's most influential people, 100 most influential people in 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, just massive, like just kind of came out of nowhere and just became this like, whoa. She got the Presidential Medal. She's like one of Oprah's BFFs. Yeah, man. She's been on, uh, what is it, the Sunday? Super Soul Sunday. Super Soul Sunday, yeah, yeah. Um, so she's just uh, wonderful. She is friends with the late, great Marcus Borg Ugh. and Phyllis Tickle. Mm-hmm. And as you guys will hear in this interview, she is so warm and lovely and sweet and strong and concise. And man, she's just one of those people that you talk to her, you read her, and you just get more excited about living. Yeah. About yeah. all of this. And it's always fun for us because it, it reminds us um, how lucky that we are to do what we do, to, to be able to have conversations like this with people like her. And uh, it just, I mean, it's always fun. Yeah. Always fun. And we, hopefully you guys hear that. It, hopefully it comes through in this, in this interview. Yeah. So she's also an Episcopal priest and a professor of religion at Piedmont College, which is a, you know, a small little liberal arts college in Georgia. And here's what I love about her. So she's this you know, tiny, silver-haired, you know, horn-rimmed glasses, lovely Southern academic. And she lives on a farm. In That's rural, amazing. In rural Georgia. So I just picture BBT, like, riding her horse in the morning, throwing bales of hay into a pickup truck. I'm not sure if she does any of that. It's just what I imagine. <laughs> but it's just, like she's it. just one of a kind, man. And her writing is just beautiful. Like, she gets compared to... The way she writes is very similar to if you like C.S. Lewis's writing style or Frederick Buchner's writing style. She's compared with those guys because that's how good she is. She's brilliant. Yeah. You guys are going to like this. We had a lot of fun. Um, her latest book uh, kind of touches on some stuff, some topics that we've covered before in the past. Um, so if you um, look back at episodes like we had with um, Knitter, um, Paul Knitter and um, in our religious pluralism series that we did uh, a while back that we should probably revisit um, this year at some point. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a really important and interesting topic um, of conversation right now that, that uh, um, I, I think we could do use more of. So yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And I just want to talk to the listeners for a second too, because if you're listening to this podcast, you've found yourself in a place where you're willing to question things. You're willing to listen. That you would not be listening to this podcast if that was not you. And one of the first things that starts to fall away when you start to do that is maybe I'm not right all the time, which is a really, really, really good thing. And we want to encourage that kind of thinking, that humility. And what you'll hear about the book we end up talking about more towards the end, you know, but the title of this episode is Holy Envy, is what you're going to get with the way Barbara kind of holds you by the hand and walks you into engaging with other faiths is the right way to do it. I mean, I'm just going to say it is the right way to do it. If there's a right way to do it, this is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. It is respectful. Um, she doesn't take anybody where they're not ready to go. Um, she's not forceful. Um, she looks at the beauty of things and she still uh, considers herself intensely Christian, but knows 
how to be in the world in this way. And if you're a person that's listening to this podcast, you're probably wondering, maybe I should consider what other faiths are saying, what people, more importantly, of other faiths, how they're living, what their experience is, what they're doing, uh, which is the best part of religion. So I really, really encourage everybody, heavy buy recommendation on Holy Envy. You need to go out and get it, experience um, what she's talking about in this book, and hopefully you enjoy this episode. Yeah, and uh, thank you to everybody who um, support us on Patreon. Uh, we cannot thank you guys enough. Um, if, you're, if you're not um, one of our patrons and you're interested, um, you can get there by way of our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com, uh, where we also have links to our social media. So if you want to follow us on there, uh, we've also got um, some, you know, a few merchandise items there so you can get yourself a snazzy t-shirt or some buttons or a coffee mug. Um, and we also have, um, when we actually get around to it, we have our blog on there as well. So we, we post some writings, not only by us, but some of, uh, um, some folks that, uh, we're friends with and, and, um, other outside contributors. But, um, but yeah, you can also listen to the, the, the episodes directly through the website as well. So our entire back catalog is on there. So, and special shout out to Chris Finnegan who came out in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yes. And hung out with us. So and be- cool. And became our new best friend. And, and sorry to those of you who, um, who, who got at us late in the game and, and uh, asked us when we were coming over when we were already back. <laughs> so <laughs> we will get you the next time. We, we promise. So but, uh, thank you, Chris, for your hospitality and for the probably several rounds of pints that I think you ended up buying us. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we had so much fun with you, man. Yeah, Edinburgh was beautiful. And uh, yes. thanks to our boy, uh, Eric Eklund, too, for being our personal oh. tour guide when we were over there. What a good dude. Not even sure if you listen to this show, Eric, but if you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you thank so you. much for taking us into the Scotch and Malt Whiskey Society. I'm a changed man forever. <laughs> I was baptized by Scottish water. Adam, Adam had a religious experience over there. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, everybody. Uh, for now, uh, we got the BBT coming at you. That's right. I'm not looking for your pity. I want your life. I'm looking for the city. Radiant light. On the hill, we're ascending on. It's your will that they're depending on. Your voice, your youth, your time, your art, your song, your life, your rhyme, your heart. What are you spending on? What are we spending on? When we're gone, and ain't just to come to say just All right, well, Barbara Brown Taylor. I can't believe I'm even saying that. Been such a big fan for so long. John and I are just uh, absolutely tickled to finally have you on the show. And uh, thank you so much for just giving us uh, some time out of your what's probably a very busy schedule based on what I've been seeing and hearing and reading. So thank you for being with us. Oh, I'm so pleased. Plus, I get to be in my ironing room, which is way better than being at the airport. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Oh man! So um, for for the listeners out there who who maybe don't know as much about your backstory, uh, we thought that would be a great place to start and talking a little bit about your personal journey uh, of of your faith journey and and how you got to where you are now. Golly, all we have to do is decide where I am now. But I <laughs> I think it'd be fair to say I was raised in a non churchy household um, by a disillusioned Catholic father and a disillusioned Methodist mother who decided to protect their kids from religion. So I found it on my own in my teen years with a lot of peer pressure and went through Baptist, um, Presbyterian, kind of Unitarian, kind of college interdenominational stuff before I went off to seminary, an unchurched person, 
on a fellowship and found the Episcopal Church. And for all kinds of reasons we can talk about, if they prove interesting, that's the place I've stayed. So I was um, ordained in the Episcopal Church in 83, 84, and have been there ever since. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to hear more about it. So there's probably a whole lot more in that journey. You know, this is called the Deconstructionist Podcast, but if you look real close at our logo, it's had some rework done to it that the D is actually in brackets because construction is kind of something that happens with a little bit of D and a little bit of re and, you know, it's just kind of ups and downs <laughs> and it's it's more about construction, but the zeitgeist, you know, latches onto this word deconstruction right now. So it kind of proved to be a pretty good name for us, but it sounds like there's could have been a lot of that going on and what you just packed into those couple seconds you told us of, of your backstory. I'd love to hear how you became Episcopal and kind of how some of those ups and downs went for you in your journey. Well, some of it, you know, is the last millennium, and I'm really aware of how fast things change now, so it's not inconsequential that a lot of what I just said happened in the 1900s and not the 2000s, but um, like a lot of Southerners, who don't have any particular ballast in a tradition, I was just a shopper. I just went with friends different places Mm. and paid a lot of attention to whether I liked the people there, whether I liked the setting, whether I liked the sermon, the music, et cetera. And when I walked into a high Anglican Episcopal church in New Haven, Connecticut, and woke up to the first time to the tradition that undergirded the place and the preaching and the music, et cetera, that now, at least in my understanding then, that the Anglican tradition was a kind of of Catholicism that dated back to the 4th century and not to Henry VIII, many wives. Mm. And that got interesting to me. These days it's known as Celtic theology, so that's what appealed to me, was the kind of Celtic take on the story I was familiar with as more of a Middle Eastern um, story. So, but these days, because I'm I'm in a reconstructing, deconstructing period too. What I don't love about my tradition is the imperial grandeur of the liturgy and the incense and the I don't have much incense in the country world now. But <laughs> the vestments, the the big golden rings on the bishop's fingers with giganto amethysts. I mean, all that's really embarrassing. Uh-huh. But yeah, but I I I do still love the what I would call the non-doctrinal approach to faith of common prayer instead of common confession. So mm. we confess the you know Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, but um, our being in church doesn't depend on our assent to every line of any creed. Our being in church is a matter of being willing to pray together. That's it at its best. So mm. I love that kind of theological freedom and still do. One of the things you mentioned, you know, um, is that you're, you're kind of going through like a deconstruction, reconstruction. I think a lot of people are. And one of the things I think Adam and I have noticed um, while doing this podcast is that there seems to be almost an electricity in the air um, just in regards to this yeah. kind of sea change that's happening. And kind of a nod back to one of our heroes, Phyllis Tickle, um, you know, who, who pointed out 
in, in, in one of my favorite books that every 500 years, there seems to be this rummage sale where the church as a whole goes through a shift. Um, what's your take on that? And I know you were friends with one of my favorite people who the Lord took from us too early. So we couldn't interview him, Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg. Ugh. But yeah, <laughs> what, so what's your, I, I'm just curious, what's your take on, on kind of this, this uh, movement within the church? And what do you think Marcus would have, would have thought of this? Cause I, f- I feel like he would have been in the thick of things right now. What the hell is going on, Barbara? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep them both in there. Cause I'm trying to convince everybody that I'm Phyllis Tickle's reincarnation. Oh I think, God, I think you world. might be. Um, it, it, her spirit rested on me, you know, so <laughs> just, I think it did. We'll, I love we'll, it. We'll keep a conversation on her because every conference I went to while she was still alive and active, she was the oldest person in the room and the youngest thinker in the room. Definitely. And yes. I think in a lot of ways, Marcus did that in a much more sober, you know, kind of Lutheran slash Episcopal way, but <laughs> they both, here's what, neither of them seemed to have any nostalgia for the way things used to be. Mm. Neither of them wanted to get things back the way they were. Both of them had some kind of crazy confidence in the Holy Spirit to keep reinventing church and Christian community and Christian theology and um, direct religious experience. They just had some kind of durable faith in the ability of God to continue to be present, those structures were decaying and falling left and right. So that's the spirit in both of them that that I I hope I have a piece of. I hope I get a, a shred of that. You do. You do. So so to just follow in kind of, you know, what was going on with them and kind of it's all over your work, obviously. You you know that you're aware of it. That's why you made the joke about Philistical spirit resting on you, which is a rumor we will help perpetuate, by the way. We, we absolutely <laughs> okay, will. Yeah. Spread the rumor. <laughs> we will take to the interwebs and perpetuate that rumor. But w- talking you. a little bit more about like what, what they saw and what you're continuing to see, I think it inspires so much of your writing. Um, what are you seeing? What is going on? You're having lots of conversations. Obviously, you're teaching college. You know, you're an ordained priest, uh, best-selling author. Give us your vantage point. What, what is going on? Why, why does anyone listen to a podcast called The Deconstructionist Podcast? from two Midwestern boys that that have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Because any living faith, right, is being deconstructed and reconstructed all the time. I mean, any living faith. I mean, I taught world religions for the last 20 years of my professional life, and one of the first things I said at the beginning of class is, we're going to study these five. There are 36 others you could study. But these are the great ancient living traditions. It doesn't make them better than the others, but it means they've evolved or they wouldn't be alive today. Mm. They'd be dead languages. They'd be, you know, archaeological finds mm-hmm. instead of living religions. So I think what Marcus and Tickle, and not them alone, but them and my generation and a little older, you know, both got it that, um, that what was happening was, um, exciting and frightening and completely worth heading into. It, I keep straying from your question because you've got me thinking about those two people and wishing that I still had them to talk to. Mm. But, but what they were both up to, as I just said, is um, Marcus talking more to the mainline and Phyllis, in my experience, talking more to millennials and to emerging church people, you know, but neither of them, again, wanting to get the church back to where it was. I finally wore out with going to places where every question 
from the audience was about how we could get young people back to church. Oh, yeah. And I started to get a lot more interested in what young people were finding in the world and creating in the world and doing in the world. And I started to want to give them the microphone <laughs> instead of their beloved elders, you know, who have their best interests perhaps in mind, but are also seeing a lot of their beloved teachings going un- unloved now. So uh, say your question again, and maybe I'll get back to it. I'm a great free associate. Ah, no, <laughs> I, actually, that's exactly what I was trying to inspire, just some free association around uh, the thoughts that you're having that you saw in somebody like Marcus Borg and Phyllis Tickle, and just kind of linking that up with the mm-hmm. zeitgeist of religion today and, and what's going on with what you talked about uh, a minute ago with the, the re-evangelicals and the, you know, the tribes of people that yeah. you're constantly being pulled to talk to right now that are that are doing imaginative work that's looking forward. Mm-hmm. And because I was in a college classroom, I didn't have only traditional age college students. I always had a few older. But what I loved about that age group, late adolescence, really, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, was they're all deconstructing and reconstructing. They were all doing what Phyllis Tickle talked mm. about. They were out from under, you know, their elders' roofs for the first time, figuring out everything from when to do their laundry to what to think about God. And it was so incredible to be part of that, to read their papers and and listen to their discussions in class and hover around their small group stuff and go with them on field trips and just listen to the way they were figuring out what had been valuable that they had been given in their lives and and what it was time to let go, what was going to go into the rummage yeah. And though that process was just beginning for some of them, it was frightening for some, liberating for others. It was just such a fizzy, fizzy group of people to be with. I'm really happy that I I got to teach that age group, uh, which was largely absent from churches I served, by the way. The college people went away. Mm. So you had them in youth group until they were too old to be acolytes, and none of the gowns fit them anymore, and then they vanished. <laughs> <laughs> until they had babies <laughs> came back <laughs> and they're like okay 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 there's something to this this rhythm kind of thing i love that you just called them fizzy i think that's just great <laughs> this is why you're a tremendous writer this is why you're so fun to read um so if you if you could kind of act like you had a crystal ball or some great vantage point which i think you've got a pretty good one uh, based on where you've been and and what you've been experiencing both in the church and in um academia in the in the in college in teaching what do you like where do you think this is going right now what do you think is happening what are what are we all kind of getting swept up in that we're just struggling to you know play around and find language for around like what's happening in the in the spiritual consciousness right now see for vantage point we do need phyllis or marcus or brian mclaren um i'm not a good observer partly because I've opted out of social media. I adore podcasts, but beyond that, all I, all I have is a kind of antiquated, you know, website that limps along three months behind real time. I'm right there with so, you. I'm right so there I'm with you. I'm not in a good vantage. <laughs> I don't have a good vantage point, but I've spent all day really the last month working on an article about Howard Thurman. And I'm so impressed by his stress on the dynamism of of direct religious experience, the dynamism, mm. you know, of direct encounter with God and how any systematization of that 
is doomed because mm-hmm. it can't be systematized, or if it is, it's going to be need, need, need to be challenged an hour and a half from now. So, so to answer your question real directly, what I see going on right now is a challenge to stay open to something that may not be resolved in this generation or the next, but that's underway. And I'm enough of a church historian, just barely, to know, you know, the Reformation went into a hundred years war. I mean, any of us who want to see our place in history now are asking a little soon, so we can maybe hope there are windows in the hereafter, so we can look back. But all I know is I'm in the middle of something. I'm in the middle of something major, and it's not just affecting my religious tradition, but it's affecting many religious traditions, and it has to do with technology and uh, global migration and weather patterns and borrowed teachings about the divine that are waking us up across our fences. And so, so all I know to do is to stay open and curious about that and not succumb to fear and keep giving my imagination something better to work with than what it's getting from the headlines or Hollywood or you know, other, other channels that would have me despair because then I'm easier to subdue. I love yeah. that. I love that. Well, what, I, I would love to talk about that a little bit because I think that's really important and it kind of touches on your, your previous book. But I mean, we have a, we have a lot of um, uh, listeners, I think, who are probably, you know, listen to us and they're kind of in that initial stages of realizing, hey, I'm on a spiritual journey, I'm on a deconstruction. And, and it, can be, it can be scary. It can be terrifying. And so um, mm-hmm. what would you say to, to people who are kind of embracing these questions and kind of, you know, just opening the door a little bit? Well, not to give you a direct commercial, but hey, listen to podcasts like this. In other words, don't be alone. Don't do it alone. Find terrific people to read and find terrific people to listen to. And if there are none where you live, then do turn on your computer. But if there's somewhere you live, get them together. Because, you know, living, breathing people right in front of you, you go out to dinner with afterwards. That's the best crowd. You know, if you can invite people to a book club or to go on a hike or to bring their favorite poem, because that will lead to some depth of the spirit, especially if you've got somebody a little bit astute at seeing that happening. But but I would say, be not afraid. I'd say, take heart. I would say, don't go it alone. And I'd also say for anybody who's ready, that most of what you will lose is idolatrous anyway. Um, most of what you will lose was too flimsy to stand. So there are awful things about earthquakes. And the the perhaps only good thing about an earthquake is what's built in its place is stronger, has stronger foundations and, and better ceilings. And I'm not liking my metaphor because I don't want to get it <laughs> again. <laughs> but but anyway, it, it is scary. It's terrifying. I mean, in Holy India, I start out, I would teach world religions by assuring Christians it wouldn't make them lose their faith, and then I realized that wasn't true. It was going to at least make them lose the faith that they used to keep, um, you know, the box closed with. So the yeah. box was going to spring open, and that's always scary. So, uh, yeah. uh, oh, so that might be part of it, right? Fear is normal. Fear is natural. Fear is a good instinct because it means something valuable is at stake. So pay attention, but don't shut down. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I have literally 20 thoughts probably all at the same time right, right <laughs> now. And I'm going to try to channel it into just a couple. 
But uh, thank you for the, the little commercial that you gave us. That's great. I'm going to give you one in return. Um, I think one of the things that you do just intuitively and why I want everyone listening to, to pick up your books and read them and engage with your work is even though you say you don't have this vantage point because you, you're not on social media, there's something that uh, I don't know if it's Phyllis or somebody else has given you an intuition maybe um, that the way you write is exactly what people that are going through this kind of a thing uh, really need to hear. Um, I stumbled across uh, um, learning to walk in the dark, uh, probably right after it came out. I don't know if a listener suggested it or somebody, but I was like, I think that's exactly what I need to hear because I'm a pastor and I opened up this door to invite people into this space because I, I, I've always thought that we should not be afraid of questions. And I, I thought it was going to be a really good thing. And kind of like you just mentioned, um, I was starting off by assuring myself, my wife, my family, my mom, <laughs> My, my friends, my co-pastors, that this was going to be a healthy spiritual exercise and I was not going to lose my, my faith. And boy, how wrong. <laughs> how, how wonderfully wrong. How wonderfully wrong I was because um, you don't know how many idols you have until you really start to expose everything. And your book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, came around at such a great time. And early in the book, you hinted, uh, you said after years of using this language, and I'm, you're referring to your seminary training, to pray, teach, preach, and celebrate sacraments, I fell out of love with it, you said. Not just the words themselves, but also the vision of reality that they represent. It was a huge loss, full of grief as any other. The language had come uh, so blessed, such blessed relief at first, and now it's a, a naming, a tug of war going on both inside and outside of me. So that's in that book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. You, you kind of get that you're taking people and almost inviting them into this darkness that even you yourself had kind of gone to. Is that right? Is that? And it, I, yeah, and I think that's a different way of talking about the question before this one, which is it is a period of walking in the dark. And, and there, in a way, that entire book was an exploration of where I am, religiously, spiritually, theologically, which is not there anymore and not anywhere else yet. But as you said early on, the journey is the destination. So sort of learning to be comfortable on the boat, you know, that I don't know where it's going to land. Um, but the wonderful things about the dark are, again, how much more open to help I am when I'm in the dark and how much more slowly I move, and how much less well-defended I am, mm. and and sometimes how much more vulnerable I am to awe and to wonder and mm. to mystery that I can almost let go of my grip on certainty, but that all depends on waking up in the morning. That all just sucks coming back up. Because I also, traveling with that book, a lot of people who've been in dark places for a really long time and they wanted to know you know where's the sun so yeah so i, I hope i'm not being facile it's where a lot of us are living right now whether it's politically spiritually in our gender identity our local communities our working lives name it um we're not there anymore and we're not where we're going yet so yeah take heart it, it, one it, of god's favorite places is the dark that's mm. right. That's right. Yeah. Mm. It, you know, it's funny uh, hearing you talk about that um, makes me think of uh, a quote by one of our dear friends, um, Dr. Alexander Shia, 
um, we did an episode kind of on that on that topic as well. And 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 he had this quote that that I love that I try to remind myself when I'm going through a, a dark time where you know fresh radiance is found in the darkness. You know, and and uh, I, I have to sometimes daily, you know, these days remind myself that that's that's true. Wow, and you just gave me too this new image of. Also, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying not to create a new dualism between dark and light. Some of the best comments I got about that book was what about twilight? You know, what about the places where, where light is turning to dark and dark is turning to light? But it is true that when things are really dark, like they are physically around my house, a little bit of light is magnificent. It goes so far. I mean, the light in a spider's eye, you know, in the grass is so illuminating. So that's helpful when... You know, for any of us who are light hogs and want it light all the time, um, just to remember in the dark how far a little bit of light goes, it kind of decreases your greed. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, really spoke to me about learning to walk in the dark is um, how ambiguity and uncertainty and uh, a spiritual darkness um, drew me towards experience because I could not rely on um, idolatrous certainty anymore. I could not rely on pat Ooh. answers. I, I couldn't. I had to feel around. I had to I u- love that. use I love other, that. other senses. And I think maybe, I, I, I look at myself as a pretty average guy, and I a lot of times just think if it's going on with me, this has to be what's going on with other people. I think there's so much repenting from certainty right now that the darkness is turning people into mystics again. Mm-hmm. Experience. Like mm-hmm. You have to experience it. You can't just memorize words. <laughs> you have to experience it. It's true. And guess what? You can't even see your map, right? Even if you had a really good one with you, you can't see it. You can't. So, Got to learn to smell the water, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this is something that is so all through the tradition, all through the scriptures, all through, you know, to, you know, call out to your book that we're going to talk about here in a minute, all through all the religions. Isn't it funny that all the mystics of all the religions never really had a problem hanging out? They kind of kept the dialogue alive while the theologians were arguing. It's true, you know, I, I've, I, read, I read too much to remember who said what anymore, but there was one about an interreligious conference where the, the scholars went into one room and the, and the meditators and prayers went into the other room. And at lunchtime, the meditators and prayers were all hugging and laughing and sitting together. Yeah. <laughs> and the scholars and theologians were just eating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I yes. love that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I think that's, and I, I, I would love to uh, use that as kind of a segue into, to your new book, which I was thrilled to find out what the, what the topic was. Cause um, oh, yes. One of the things Adam and I have, have tried to do um, in our own little way, in our own little corner of the universe, is um, try to open people up to experiencing other traditions. And so one of the things we did, um, gosh, almost, I guess, two years ago now, so we're probably due for a new one, but we did a, um, a religious pluralism series where we invited some guests on who um, came from different traditions like Judaism and Hinduism and Islam and and because uh, one of the things we noticed, even with uh, within ourselves, is is just a uh, a lot of times is just unknowing or just a lack of understanding of these other traditions. And once we started mm-hmm. to break down those barriers, um, it became a lot less uh, scary or 
uh, intimidating. Um, and so we, we wanted to try to do that for other people and, and kind of bring the resources to them. And so hearing that you were writing a book like that, um, I thought was outstanding. And one of the stories you talk about in the book, I really personally identify with where you describe going to a Hindu temple. Um, and so one of the things I, I had to do for one of my um, classes in seminary was go on a field trip to a temple. And it, they said, nope, you can't go to, uh, you, you can't go and observe, you know, a, a Jewish ceremony. You have to go. It's too similar. You have to go to something that is completely outside your comfort zone. And so I went to a, a, a Hindu temple and it completely changed the way that I, I view other religions now. And um, I, for the first time in my life, I think I was able to see, um, not, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't standing there thinking, oh, you know, um, judging them from my Christian perspective, but rather saw the beauty, um, and the history in this other tradition. And a, a lot of the misconceptions I think kind of fell away. So I would love Ooh, to hear you. You were lucky. That's wonderful. Yeah. Isn't, yeah. That, isn't that great? <laughs> Um, so I would love to hear your perspective on, on kind of over the years teaching this, this class on world religions and having visited other faiths and experiencing uh, other traditions and ceremonies and things of that nature. How, how did that impact um, your personal faith? Yeah, I wasn't going to put that in the book, but then my editor kept wagging his finger at me and saying, you need to step into this book more. And oh, I'm so glad. With you. Love it. What a great editor. So there's, a, there's a lot more of that in the book. But, you know, one thing, just based on what you just said, is, and then I'll get back to another, is what you saw, I hope, at the Hindu temple was reverence. And I learned to see the reverence and pay more attention to that than I did to the object of reverence. And I know that can go south. But there, it, it was so much lovelier to concentrate on how people were giving themselves away and how they were becoming translucent and how they were treating each other, you know, in their sacred spaces than it was to worry a whole lot about whether I approved of what they were worshiping. Mm. So there was that. And then to respond to your idea about maybe it's time to redo the two years ago podcast, here's what got interesting to me. The downside was in a 15-week course, we could only go to one Hindu temple or one synagogue or one Buddhist Dharma hall. And the fact is you could have two or three Buddhist guests on a podcast and ask them a question and get different answers from all three of them. Yes. yes. You know, in other words, the next step is not just for the basics of the tradition to become less strange, but, but once you got your feet in those stirrups, now head into the diversity within these traditions. Yes. And allow that they're as diverse as your own tradition is. That, you know, Southern Baptists and Greek Orthodox Christians probably have about as much to say to each other as, <laughs> as, as Sunni and Shia Muslims. In other words, there's as much divergence within those traditions as there is in ours. So that was the the big shocker. I, I almost wish I could have spent a whole semester on each one so we could have experienced the differences within them mm. as well as the differences between them and Christianity. So, so good. Um, uh, it, it, it's lovely though, that you had the experience you did. Cause as you know, from the book, I had um, one student who really wanted out of there, wanted out of there so bad. And, mm. and another whom I could hardly get out of there. He was, so 
you know, into the experience of the divine in new forms. So the reactions were all over the place, and it ended up being a kind of mirror of where students were individually in their walks with the divine. Yeah, I, I just sensed it was interesting because I, I, obviously I critique my own faith, you know, probably far more than I would someone else's, you know, um, and so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm rather critical of of Christians as a whole, uh, occasionally when they, when they inevitably disappoint me, <laughs> you know, but, um, <laughs> but I feel like you know one of our biggest issues is this this lack of humility in the way that we we view and treat the world around us, and I saw this just this this sense of humility that I wasn't used to mm-hmm. when I walked in there, just in terms of the way they viewed other religions. And I remember hearing this story. Yeah. The um, uh, my, my friend who introduced me to the temple said uh, the founder of his particular um, variation of, of Hinduism said, and, and, and who knows if the story is true and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to probably butcher this, but I just thought it was so profound and spoke volumes of, their uh, viewpoint on other religions, but the story goes something like this. He said, uh, you know, his, his founder was in an airport and this man came running up and he was a, a Muslim and he got down on his knees and said, you know, please let me be, become part of your religion. I'm so tired of the violence and et cetera, et cetera, within my, in, within my religion. And the founder looked at him. He said, no, stand up, go back and, and be the best Muslim you can be. You know, it doesn't, your religion teach you and pulled out some of the beauty within his religion and said, no, go back and be the best Muslim you can be. And then later he's in, mm-hmm. in Europe and a Christian comes up and he's like, please let me join your, your religion. I'm so sick of the hypocrisy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he gave him the same message. He says, no, don't you believe in Jesus? Uh, oh, you know, so go pay attention to the teachings of Jesus and ignore the hypocrisy because in the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? So go be the best Christian you can be. And I thought, and this is the first story he tells me. And I thought, wow, that's not the version we would have given you, <laughs> you know, when, if, if you were in our shoes. So I just thought it was just profound. It, it is. And you know, you just, again, I don't know what your listeners will think about this, but you just put your finger on the hot button of evangelism, you know, which is, you know, when we encounter somebody of another faith, what would it be like to say, please go be the best that that you could be, you know, instead of please allow me to make you like I am. Yeah. <laughs> or, and, and that's too simple a way of putting it, but, but that's, that's a hot spot for me is what I learned about the harm that Christian evangelism has done to people of other faiths. I still remember a Muslim who said to me, I cannot believe the way Christians talk about Muhammad. We would never speak of Jesus that way. Yeah. Yeah. So not only because he's a prophet in our own tradition, but we would never speak of, of your spiritual exemplar the way you all speak about ours. And I thought, ow. Yeah. So I found that over and over again, just the it, almost disbelief at how rude and unthinking Christians were about whether other people had ever had a spiritual thought of their own 
before the Christians showed up to enlighten them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so like you, I got, I got super embarrassed in my tradition to the point that some of my students would say, wow, we got to the unit on Christianity and you were really mean about Christianity. You were nice about all the others. <laughs> <laughs> Which one can I be mean about but my own? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we have to be hypercritical because how do we improve? You know, I, I always think, how can I be better and, and a better example of my faith? And so I think we have to be hypercritical, you know. Um, one of the things that I always think about in regards to that, because I, you know, I catch a lot of heat now that I'm starting to sound a little bit too tolerant of, of others, which is fine. I, I enjoy that. I'm sure you do too. Um, but I always like to point people back to, especially the Christians, back to Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well. And when she asks them, well, which mountain is it? And, you know, he doesn't say, well, you, I'm, I'm Jew and I'm, I'm a Jewish Messiah. So it's, you know, obviously the Jews are right, dummy. <laughs> no, he says, I tell you, you know, there's a time coming where it's going to be in spirit and in truth. He says something beyond the question that she's trying to ask. She's trying to find the box and where, where should the box go? And he, uh-huh. and he points to the bigger reality, which I just think is so overlooked. And, yeah. and I think you do yeah, such see, a good job drawing that out. Well, and I think that's like, you know, the story of the 10 lepers. I'd have to have it right in front of you. But the only one who comes back to say thank you, Jesus sends him off. He's a Samaritan, right? So he's not going to Jerusalem right. to, to, to see the priest, to be declared well. He's going to, you know, his, his own sacred mountain. And, and I think when I looked at the stories again, and I did a lot of that in the book, I, I took a number of stories, and so when I went back and looked, I didn't say what I'd been possibly said. And then I started to realize how much probably every religious tradition, you know, privileges the parts of its sacred text that say, you're right, you're, you know, you chose right, you're doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely. They're all wrong. But, <laughs> but I, I just heard, got an email from a wonderful guy who everybody wants to ask about John 14, 6. You know, no one comes oh, sure. to the Father but by me. And I usually ask people to read John twelve forty four that says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And even this guy said, what an interesting verse. I don't think I ever read that before. There you go. So the question being, why not? You know, why, why is John 14, 6 embroidered on two towels and John 12, 44 is in on a coffee mug? So it's, it's interesting, you know, four religions with sacred texts. Why do we love the verses we love and why do we ignore the verses we ignore? No, and this really drives at the heart of your book, Holy Envy, um, which is what we're going to have to call this podcast title because I really wanted to, to call it Learning to Walk in the Dark with Holy Envy, but that's just going to be too long. <laughs> um, so, Wait a minute, we can do this. L-T-W-C <laughs> with H-T. We'll, we'll print BBT. bracelets. Yeah. BBT, L-T-W. But so, you know, in... In your book, you, you reference one of your mentors, uh, Christian Stendhal, and the three questions that he drives at, which um, you and John were, were really just bantering about, really, and I thought it'd be a good time to, to dive into this. Um, talk to us a little bit about how, you know, because we want to give people an appetizer and get them out and buying this book and, and dialoguing with it, hopefully, you know, bring it in, into their churches or you know, wherever they find themselves. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, you know, I guess I, I don't even know how to frame this into a question. I just want to talk about it. These three questions, you know, when trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not Fox News. I mean, not its enemies. <laughs> I, sorry, a little slip, slip of the tongue there. 
Um, number two, don't compare your best to their worst. You know, the old straw man argument. And then number three, lo- yeah. leave room for holy envy, which obviously is the title of your book. But I mean, man, that was worth, buy- that was w- right there, that was worth buying the book for. Just building off of that. You did such a good job building off of that. So that really impacted you. And this book grew out of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, it did. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. First of all, for people who don't know those three kind of bullet points, it's really a little mini ethic of how to be with people of other traditions. And his context was Church of Sweden and Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because in 1985, the Mormons were building a temple in Stockholm, and he came to the microphone to address local unease about that. So that was, you know, a close, close-ish connection in a country, Sweden, that had welcomed people of many faiths for a long time. Um, but what I loved about the phrase holy envy was I found so many of my Christian students in world religions class would go to a Hindu temple, or they would go to a Buddhist Dharma Hall, or they would um, go to a synagogue and find something they loved there, something that was beautiful to them or spoke to them, or they'd they'd see something that struck them as a a facet of the face of God, and then they'd feel like traitors to Jesus, like they were sleeping around, like like they had just become unfaithful. And and by introducing Stendhal's idea of holy envy, and, and frankly, Ibu Patel's teaching also, that in in most cases, multi-religious dialogue can help you um, strengthen your own identity in, instead of putting it at terrible risk. But anyway, holy envy, putting holy in front of envy and taking that apart for them, deconstructing it and reconstructing it, they began to see that that could be a sacred thing and that it didn't require them to leave their traditions. They could. Some of them did. You know, but that was no requirement. But if anything, it might help them be even better what they were already. So so I, that's what I liked, was the kind of sacralization of what they thought of as a deadly sin. Yeah. So what would you suggest? I mean, because one of the things that we try to do is just say, hey, like, I think the first step to engaging with someone of another tradition is to you know, sit down and have coffee with somebody or just talk to, talk to your neighbor. And, and so what are some things you suggest to, um, to get people out there to, to learn about, um, other traditions, um, using those three, those three bullet points? And so much it depends on where people live, because if you're in a city, um, there's going to be visit a mosque day coming up soon. And you should take the invitation and go visit a mosque because they'll have food and entertainment and, They'll show you around, and um, I live in a little tiny rural county of 40,000 people, but the um, the Buddhist New Year was celebrated this past weekend, so there is one Theravada Buddhist temple in the county, and they invited everybody out from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. to come eat and, and witness the Miss New Year's pageant and take part in activities there. So it kind of depends on where you live. This changes locale to locale, and honest to goodness, if you're you know, if you live in a place where there's no world religious variety at all, I'll bet you there's a Native American community somewhere, yeah. or I'll bet you the Seventh Day Adventists or the Jehovah's Witnesses you know, might not kick you out if you went to see what that's all about. So there's no shortage, um, you know, of 
religious neighbors to investigate. But again, I think it's really wise, A, to make sure you're going someplace where you'll be welcome, and B, take somebody with you that you can talk to about it afterwards. Um, and then, you know, the opportunities that social media and chat rooms, and I don't even know if chat rooms is still a word, two words, but but it seems to me also that, that the computer does give you ways to get outside your local community. I think local is the best place to start, but then um, <laughs> and eventually you got to get down to people in your real close circle that you just wish would go away, right? Travel <laughs> with Holy Envy, the last question of, <laughs> of every book, book Q&A was like, yeah, but what do we do with people who don't know that they need to have Holy Envy? Let's exclude the excluders. Let's hate the haters. <laughs> Oh. Wait, wait. <laughs> this, uh, this is counterproductive. Yes. Let's back up a little bit here. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I think you drive at, which becomes, you know, at first a fear of many people, but then it ends up becoming, well, at least to me, and I think I can speak for you just from reading your book, uh, a deep relief is, you know, you start off when you start approaching these other, these others, these other people, these other cultures, these other books, these other religions, these other traditions, and you say, everything's going to be okay. I've still got my strong, sturdy faith. This is just going to be a great exercise. And then mm. you, you face that fear that, oh my gosh, I'm changing. My views are changing. My loves are changing. My attractions to you know, certain things are, I'm, I'm starting to lose maybe who I am. But then, you know, there's something in your chapter, Disowning God, that I just loved that you got back to, that you said, uh, you know, the Bible, it, you know, it, it ends up being your baseline in matters of faith for, for reasons that maybe people that haven't read the book won't quite understand. I'd love you to unpack it a little bit. But you say it's, it's baseline in matters of faith, something far older than I am with a great deal more experience in what it means to be both human and divine. You go on to say, when religious arguments based on the perspective of a single century or single culture reach a high pitch, or when people who have seemed to have read only excerpts of the Bible use it to propose legislation. I love that. I return to the book not to find a solution, but to remember how many possibilities there are. So in that journey, you're still here, but in a new way. Could you talk about that a little bit from your, just from your heart? See, now I have 20 different responses. You had 20, 20 a minute ago, and now I have about 20. I love well, it. Let's, let's do the scriptural piece first, because, yeah. well, I mean, I'm just, I'm a Bible hound. I just have always loved it, and I think it's because I would have been an English major if I hadn't been a religion major in college. So I love parsing a text, and I love reading and rereading and yes. finding the deeper reading and finding the alternative reading and realizing how my, you know, social location affects my reading and so, so the Bible, I have just always loved, and I especially love the way it always surprises me because it never says what I thought it said, and I always have to go back and read it again. But I also love the minority theme, you know, the, the I call it sometimes the lunar theme in the Bible, which, which is God's care for the stranger and the sojourner and the resident alien. Uh, Torah is so huge on that. Mm. You know, that yes, you're called to love the neighbor, but as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs pointed out to me, that shows up once um, in Torah, and there are, you know, more than 30 commands to love the stranger mm. and to remind us that the stranger and I are both alike before the Lord. And I think, you know, the Christian New Testament has got its own version of that as well. As you said, in many of the activities of Jesus, 
and yet we kind of baptize all the characters who come into his stories and forget that they went back home by another way and, you know, didn't stay to become part of the Christian community in wherever he was. So I, I, I love the lunar theme, the minority theme that goes through these texts, these sacred texts that always make room for those who don't belong to them, who are not, you know, who don't worship at that altar. I, I tell the story of Melchizedek in Holy Envy, who has all three verses, I think, in Genesis. But he shows up out of nowhere and blesses Abraham and gives him bread and wine and goes away. I love That's it. That's the end of Melchizedek. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but, but what an early surprising act of, you know, the divine to send the priest of a supposedly another altar, you know, to give Abraham his first blessing. I just love that. So... That's why I go back and back. Um, so so it does seem bedrock to me. It wouldn't be around this long. And it's one of the great reasons to look into a religion. You know, even if, like me, you were never raised in a religious household, I used to tell college students, you have to major in something at college. You have to learn to be a deep thinker about one subject, or you'll be a lousy thinker at all subjects. Um, so, oof. you know, a religion does transcend a single lifetime, a single culture, a single century, so it's a huge repository of wisdom for good and ill of what can go wrong and what can go right. Um, so I, you know, I hope we don't, you know, lose these treasure chests altogether. Though they deserve to be rummaged through, as they're being rummaged through in Christianity right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I love how one thing I've noticed about you is that you're very particular with with um, certain words, and one of the things I've heard you say before. Um, You've you've mentioned in the past um, the term religious pluralism, but you don't call it religious pluralism. You call it pluralism, and I thought your reasoning behind that was was really uh, terrific. So I I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure, it's invisible in a course like Religion 101 because you only have 15 weeks for five religions, or at least the way I taught it. So there's not a lot of room to talk about how religion never arrives all by itself. It always arrives with history and politics and economics, gender and class and, you know, race and ethnic. I mean, it it always comes wrapped in um, all the other pluralisms of what it means to be human. And, Mm. you know, those of us talking on this podcast are living in an explosion of pluralism, of gender identity and multiple religious identities and so much fluidity so so I, I can talk about religious pluralism, but it would be false to act as if that can be kept separate mm. from all the other ways in which human beings are plural. Christianity is a plural. It's not a singular. Islam is a plural. Um, you know, people who live on the subcontinent of India are plural. They're not all Hindu by any stretch of the imagination. So these pluralisms go on and on. And I also like to talk about religious literacy, because even people who think they're not interested in, in religion for its teachings can still be interested in recognizing architecture and art and music and food and holidays and placemats and Asian restaurants. You know, there, there's a kind of religious literacy that just helps you live in the culture with more ease and familiarity. So anyway, people want to slice it. I'm happy for them to slice it as long as they'll Pick it up and give it a taste. Mm. I love it. I love that you, uh, in the beginning of your book, I knew I was going to love it because uh, it's my favorite Kipling quote. I think I got it from either Chesterton or Lewis first, but uh, mm. he never knew England who only England knew. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 
But the interesting thing about that is, and you get to it pretty quickly in your introduction, that um, traveling isn't easy on the mind and the body. And it does, yeah. it does help you to, you know, you'll never know where you are if where you are is all you have seen. But uh, you talk about, you use this phrase that I love, and you only, I think you only say it once, but the existential dizziness that comes from, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that really hit me. And I know it was just kind of one little aside, but uh, I wonder if you could just chat about that just a little bit. Like, I get that. I think a lot of us that are in this place mm-hmm. often feel quite dizzy, maybe jet lagged if we want to stick with the Kipling metaphor. But uh, wow, mm-hmm. there's really something to that. How do you deal with that? What's your experience with that? Gosh, you're right. I'm playing with jet lag. It's a good metaphor, too. Uh, but existential dizziness occurred in me and in the students who told me about it. it. It happened when we realized we had a worldview. Because <laughs> oh. that immediately suggests there's more than one. <laughs> and once there's more than one, um, and you visit another one, and all of a sudden, at least a piece of it really makes sense, really sounds true, really matches your experience, then you get dizzy. Uh Uh-oh. Because it's just like you got on one of those, I don't know, machines at the fair that spins you around so fast. I don't know. Um, But the dizziness came into me when, um, when, when, when other ways of seeing the world, when I saw truth in them. Whole truth? No, I don't even see whole truth in my own. But when I saw truth in them, I'd get dizzy. Mm. I'd get dizzy when when my, the things that I held onto, my handles, when my handles let go, the screws just pulled out of them. My Christian handles, the screws pulled out of them. And, and all of a sudden I'm holding the handle in my hand, but it's not opening a door anymore. I mean, that'll make you dizzy. It's like, oh, geez, I, that always worked. I could always go through that door before. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into too many layers of mixed metaphors here. I but, love it. I love but it. But tell me, I mean, can, am I allowed to reverse this? Tell Please. Me, tell me where the dizziness, where do you notice it zipping in on you? Oh man, I can tell you the, the first moment I felt it, Barbara, um, uh, similar to you, but uh, it wasn't, it wasn't when I realized that people had different worldviews. I'd always known that. I was an apologetics buff. I mean, I had read how to dismantle mm-hmm. those worldviews and how to reassure oh, myself wow. of how I had the ultimate worldview. It hit me actually when I was in a corporate boardroom training uh, to become a manager in my, in my company that I was in. And they thought it was a really good idea from a human resources perspective to, to train us on implicit bias. And I'm oh, yeah. sitting in a corporate boardroom and I'm learning about bias, systemic bias, um, affinity bias. And then the one that really sent me spinning was confirmation bias. Yeah. And how we are wired to read the answer, to see what we want to see, to filter information and only accept that which puffs up our ego and our identity and the, the, the place that we have already decided is the right place to be, the right way to see things. And I imagine, and I, I still, I swear it was the Holy Spirit, I imagined my bookcase and it was just one giant confirmation bias. And I felt, and I literally <laughs> felt sick. I felt sick. I almost fell out of my chair. I felt sick. Oh. And then it all started for me Where's right the, there. Oh, and now we can all go look at our bookshelves and 
see our confirmation biases and all their expensive beauty, right? Because that's what we all do. I mean, come look. Isn't that what you do? When I go into somebody's house and they've got a bookshelf, I go right over. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so now I try to pr- I try to put some reconciliation into my bookshelf. I put like Rob Bell like right next to Tim Keller, just just so they're buddies. Just today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's medicine cabinets and bookshelves that'll tell you, and maybe bedside drawers. <laughs> yes, yes. Everything you need to know. <laughs> I love that you and asked so me that question. Another thing though. you just did. Yeah. You just picked up a psychological category, and and I do want to point out. You know, we were talking about pluralism a minute ago. That good grief, we need to know more about the way the human mind works. Yes. The human psyche before we can talk about religion, because yes. otherwise we'll just leap in to everything you talked about, you know, plus scapegoating, plus projection, plus groupishness, you know, plus all the other things that we do that are below our radar. We don't even know we're doing them. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. Little, little self-awareness goes a long way. I always thought psychology 101 should come before religion 101. Oh, man, it really should. I think just teaching awareness in general, just... Um... That, you know, thoughts are things that come to you and you have to learn to become aware of what's happening and why. And that that is an exercise, I think, that is image of God. That's something that only humans have. So we should be really, we should be a lot more intentional with it. Well, and you talked about humility earlier, right? And and the, the experience you just described is a great humbler, oh. hugely humbling in the in the best sense the best sense of the word because when you get your own stuff like that wow does that take you down a peg so that you can well it takes you down a whole ladder right so that so that uh, so that you can have a fresh view and but it is it is humbling oh yeah and and echoing in my ears after that was repent repent for the for the kingdom of heaven is near repent and believe the good news and i'm like I think I might actually maybe know what that means a little now. Oh, after I've been through seminary, wow. after I've preached, you know, a hundred sermons, ap- you know, ap- after <laughs> all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's wonderful. It's, oh, absolutely- it's such a good word, isn't it? That's one of those words I hope we don't lose because it's been weaponized. You know, repent has been weaponized like a lot of other words, but what a great word. Oh, it's a Look great again, word. repent, re, you know, recircle, reconfigure, reconstruct, right? Re, yes. Re. Yes. Reread. Re. Re. Well, you know, I, I just, uh, if, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, we won't want to take up a whole lot more of your time, but uh, we're kind of on a roll here, but I think it's also just a great place to just say, if you could just kind of give a little bit of advice or a little bit of an invitation to people that are in this kind of place that are listening to a podcast like this, what would you, what would you like to say to them? Well, I truly want to um, champion this medium. A, it's intimate. You know, this is like radio. This, this is, people are listening to this. And, and when we watch each other, we're distracted. But there's something about this medium, this podcast medium, that's exploding for a good reason. And it's not just the convenience of being able to listen to it when you want to listen to it. It's intimate. And, and, it, it's, it's, uh, and the visual gets, gets shut down so that we listen better, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the excitement of talking to people like the two of you. Honest to goodness, writing a book is, is 
well, I'm not going to say it's wonderful. It's hard, but it's so <laughs> solitary. And then when the book comes out and, and an author gets to go on the road with it and talk to people about it and see what other people think and be argued with in brilliant ways and, and to, to have people pose, you know, thoughtful corrections to this or that, that's the exciting stuff. So what I would like listeners to know is they've just spent a, a really their time in a really good way. And that discussions like these that are that are open and full of laughter and full of wow, you know, the wows that happened to you two and the wows that have happened to me, that that, that kind of talk, we're in a good period for that kind of talk right now with those who are willing, with those who can do it and want to do it. So, hey, keep up the good work. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> BBT. Man, jeez. <laughs> I, just, I just absolutely love this so much. I don't want to hang up, but I, w- I would like to ask you if next time you're around the Midwest, if you get near Ohio, could, could we exchange yeah. I- I- IOUs for a hug and possibly a drink at this point? <laughs> Listen, the answer is yes, and that means that when we say goodbye, you've got to send me contact information. I'm serious about that, okay? Oh, absolutely. So when I yeah. get done, do you have... I'm not going to give you my email, but we'll find each other. We won't do that. Well, before we do let you go, though, um, where's the best place for, for listeners to stay on top of what you're up to, um, grab a copy of the, the, the amazing new book, and, and all that good stuff? I put the best that I have into the book because they go places I can't go, and readers make the books their own. And every book I write, I hope, inspires you know, a hundred stories and people who read them so that it's, um, it's grist for their own mills. I do on my website, which is just my name.com. I do post places I'm going, though I'm so worn out from book tour that I'm not going a whole lot of places after June, but, but I do travel from time to time. So that's there. Um, but I, but I put the best I have into the books, trusting them to kind of be like, messages in bottles and I never know where they'll land, but, um, but I trust the people who receive them to do better things with them than I thought of putting. How cool is that? Oh man. Well, we, we can't thank you enough. We, Adam and I, um, feel so privileged to talk to people like you who just exude joy and it's just such a fun time. Yes. That's what we want people to know. I feel the same way. Oh, thank you. When I, when I look at your work, Barbara, all I hear is it's so big. It's so wonderful. Let's have some fun. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) So be it. Yep. Yes. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you both. And I'll wait to hear from you, okay? Absolutely. Count on it. Well, that was fun. Uh. <laughs> oh, man. I, gosh. I, I know I said it in the intro because we just recorded it. Sorry, guys. We were in the magic again. Um, but I, there's just something about people who just exude warmth like she does that just make me just so fortunate, feel so lucky to be able to do what we do. Um, I don't know. It's just so much fun. And I, I love... I love what she had to say about ways to approach, um, you know, looking at other, other traditions and other faiths and just how to approach them in a way that's not, you know, 
buying into what the the media says and, and that sort of thing. Because a lot of that is nonsense. And it, it made me remember, it made yeah. me think back to our episode, if you remember, with uh, um, uh, Sumble. Sumble. Uh, where, where she mentioned that, you know, um, most of what you hear in the media is not indicative or representative of the vast majority of the religion in and of itself. And the fact that most of uh, pop culture only represents uh, Islam in particular um, negatively, you know, and, 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 and it made me think I had to, I had to sit back and look like, Oh wow. Like I can't think of one single character portrayed in a movie that's portrayed in a, in a positive light. And so, you know, her, her advice to, to really like engage one single Muslim character portrayed in a movie that's portrayed in a positive light. Talking about Robin Hood. Well, yeah, that would be the only one. Yep. That'd be it. (laughs) Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only one I can think of, but it's also the only decent Robin Hood movie. I would agree with Coincidence? that. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, I, I would love to see, um, you know, if we can influence people in any way, shape or form to, to be a little more open-minded and to engage with, with practitioners, as she says, um, which are oftentimes your neighbors or your coworkers. In my case, it was a guy who, who was one of my coworkers who, you know, blew me away with just his hospitality and his kindness and just, uh, the the one visit I paid to his his local temple, I mean, I was just floored, and I'm like, wow, would we have extended the same courtesy to him? I don't, I don't know. I'd like to think so. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Oh man, there's just so much. There's so much here. Uh, I, I mean, I almost struggle to sum it up in an outro like this. I mean, it's just one of those things where getting to talk to Barbara Brown Taylor um, first about learning to walk in the dark, which was you know, my first impression of her and just how um, nurturing and careful and um, deep and wise that book was to me. And it came at just the right time was just so perfect. And this one, Holy Envy, which uh, I just recently have gotten to is just, again, it's, She's just such an intuitive writer that to me, she's always writing what I need to hear when I need to hear it. And to me, that's evidence of something higher working. And I just, I really, I don't want to say too much. I really hope that everybody just goes out and gets this book and, and learns how big and beautiful this whole thing is and, and how engaging with people of other perspectives, both in our faith and outside of our faith, will make us better humans. Yeah. Will make us better humans. Will we'll make our experience in this world and the mark we leave on this world and the legacy we end up leaving in this world better and probably more true to that which we claim to adhere to, but probably do a pretty crappy job. Yeah, and I, one of the things I, I meant to mention to her during the, the interview that it slipped my mind in the moment because, you know, you, you just get captured up in whatever she's saying because she, she's so poetic with her language, um, which is one of the things I love about her. But one of the things that was a recurring theme, and, and I've heard her um, use this in, in other interviews, where when she talks about God, she doesn't usually say God. She says the divine. The divine. And I think that's intentional in, in the sense that we don't have the corner on the market. No. You know, like God is, God belongs to everyone. And, and so, you know, 
taking it back to the language of the divine, I think kind of speaks volumes in terms of, you know, the divine is present in, in, in all places, in all faiths, in all traditions, you know. Right, right, right. And that very thing, by the way, is a very biblical, I hate the word biblical, but a, <laughs> a concept that is very much found in the scriptures, both Judaism and uh, Christian scriptures, this idea that you don't get to name God, that you don't get to control God, that you don't get to own God, that you don't, that's the whole idea of not making images. That's the whole idea of not taking his name in vain. That's the whole idea behind when Jesus is resurrected, he says, don't hold on to me. And he is not somebody that you could really control. Dude's walking in and out of walls and stuff. <laughs> like he's just, there's this aspect that we try to take God in hand. And that is something that is condemned significantly in the scriptures. And, you know, we act like, well, we've got the market cornered. We've, we, we own God. So her chapter on disowning God was very Pete Rollinsy, very, yeah. you know, but uh, I just love that. And, and there's so much humility and openness that comes into your heart when you really start to get that. It's just wonderful. Well, and it's, it's, it's why, you know, it, when we look at other, um, other cultures and other traditions, why in certain other traditions, they don't allow for images um, of the divine, because once you create an image, then you think you've got uh, God in some sense nailed down and figured out. And so, it, and that becomes idolatry, which she brings up in the, the interview. Yep. yep. So I just, I love that. Love it. Yep. Everybody needs to read some BBT. Uh, we're, we were just delighted to have her on the show and uh, just delighted to be here in your ears Again. Do, doing what we do. We love you guys so much. We love that you just keep making this something that we do. Yeah. To, to our shock and awe on, know, a, on a daily basis. It's crazy. We're yeah. here in the middle of the Midwest. So we appreciate everybody who listens and, um, and, and supports the bands that we use on these episodes. Um, the bands let us use their music for free. Yep. Um, and so um, we try to promote them as much as possible. So go out and listen to their music, buy their music, um, go see them when they're on tour. And, and support them that way. They're trying to make a living. Yeah. And um, follow our playlist on Spotify. Uh, we've got a playlist on there that we update with all the artists that we use on each episode. Um, we've got way more than uh, followers on our playlist than I thought. Um, so we try to keep that up to date. Because you curate some sweet music, John. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. I yeah. find new bands that way, too. So it's kind of fun. You know, I want to give a special shout out to Nicholas Rowe. Yes. Um, He's a phenomenal musician. You'll find him on our playlist. Yep. Um, he's and got he's an, our producer. Yeah, and he's our producer. He's got an incredible album out. Um, it's very uh, cash, Tom Waits, um, mm -hmm. just really good kind of folky Americana, rock. It's amazing. He's just an incredible human also. He is. Uh, Ryan Battles that does our website. Yes. Um, and just so many others that have just helped us out. And uh, you know, George Benson that did our last episode. And, yeah. Uh, all the guys that, that designed t-shirts for us, um, Jason Turner and, and Colin Rigsby, a.k.a. the Vespertine. Vespertine. Um, it just got signed. He just got signed to a label, yeah. Signed to a label. Very exciting. With, with Imagine Dragons. Yes, he did. So, yeah, this, just, this has just been cool to be a part of. So we just want to love on you guys and let you know how much we appreciate it. Oh, Taylor Ernst. We can't, we can't leave him out. He designed our sweet logo. <laughs> I mean, Joe, Joe Ernst. Joe Ernst. Gosh. Tyler Ernst. Are, are He's you, the sweet guitar player. Are you thinking of Taylor Swift a little too much right now? I might be. Because that catchy song is stuck in your head. It's really good. It's so catchy. That's what I love about her. I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. Um, all right. Well, we love you guys. It's the middle of the week, and I'm hungry, and we got to go eat some lamb curry. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. 
All right. Well, <laughs> until uh, next time, we love you guys and uh, keep the and reconstructing. <laughs>